Welcome. You're listening to the Beaver Dam Baptist Church Sunday Sermon Podcast. If you would like more information about Beaver Dam Baptist Church or have questions about today's message, please visit us on the internet at www.bdbc.org. Well, our countdown to Christmas is almost over. We are now a week away. So, how are you feeling? Hopefully by now you are feeling excited about what is to come this week. I'm excited. Ought to be certainly a part of our feelings as Christmas comes very close. I'm sure that's the case for our children and grandchildren. They have not understood the past two sermons. They don't know anything about being anxious for Christmas. They don't know anything about being busy for Christmas. They are excited for Christmas from the start of December until it is all over with. Now, I'm not naive enough to think that my sermons have solved those other two issues with you. In fact, as Christmas draws closer, you might be more anxious than when this month began. You might be busier this week than you have been for the past couple of weeks. But at some point this week, I do hope your anxiety and busyness becomes excitement for the arrival of Christmas. We get excited about upcoming events and activities that we look forward to. Big events that we plan for our future that we can't wait for them to arrive. Although, of course, there is nothing we can do but wait. We get excited about receiving gifts, especially surprise gifts or gifts that we've been asking for for a long time. And finally, we get to open them and receive them. We get excited about victories in sports, especially those victories that come with thrilling endings or those victories that were unexpected because we were the underdog. In short, we get excited about those things or events that we are interested in or passionate about. And certainly that ought to include Christmas. If you do not get excited about Christmas, then you are, at least you're called, a Grinch or a Scrooge. It was the first week of December just a few weeks ago and there was a lady from our church in our offices and and she passed me in the hallway and she said, Merry Christmas. And I said, I'm not ready for that yet. It's the first week of Christmas, it's the first week of December. I said, I don't need a month of Christmas, I just need a week. And so she called me a Grinch. And other people around the office and others who heard about it started calling me that. And another lady in our church took it upon herself, and she's here this morning, though I won't name her. And she went out and bought me a Grinch mug which is now in my office, to solidify my reputation. So learn the lesson from me. If you're not excited about Christmas, don't tell anybody about it. Just pretend that you are. So for the purposes of this sermon, I set out to look at the excitement of Christmas. I began by looking through Scripture. I did a search in all of the Bible for the words excite, excited, excitement, They weren't found anywhere. Those words do not occur in the Bible, at least not in the ESV version in which I was searching. So next I thought about 
who is the most excited person at the first Christmas? Of all of the characters in the first Christmas story, which one of them is most excited? The obvious might be Mary and Joseph or even Elizabeth. And yet if you read those stories, they are actually somewhat more perplexed. They don't quite understand what is going on. They're not purely excited. They're somewhat confused. And so I thought without a doubt, the most excited person was the man named Simeon, a man who lived in Jerusalem and had been promised by God that he would not see death until he saw the Christ child. The only problem with that is I used Simeon for my Christmas message last year. So I couldn't do that again so soon. I thought of Anna. She is the lady who comes in the story right after Simeon. But again, I used her a few years back, so I didn't want to redo that so soon. You know, when you've been at the same church for nearly 15 years now, it's hard to come up with new material Christmas after Christmas. And so I eventually landed on these verses in Matthew chapter 2, where the The main characters, other than Jesus, are the wise men, the magi, the three kings. They're known by all of those names. I have referenced these verses before, but I've not used them, as far as I could tell, as my primary text on a Sunday morning. But I also thought to myself, if Hallmark can repeat the same Christmas movie hundreds of times then surely I can repeat some Christmas verses occasionally. So our text this morning is Matthew chapter 2, the first 12 verses. The Bible says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, O you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel." Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. The first thing I want us to see this morning, and this will be the bulk of the passage, the first thing I want us to see is that these men were excited to seek Jesus. 
Now, we are going to see that not everyone shares that excitement. Not even everybody in this story shares the excitement of seeking the newborn Jesus. But we ought to. And that ought to be true of us both before salvation and afterwards. Now, I know some of you biblical scholars might say, but we cannot seek God prior to salvation. The Bible says that no one seeks after God. And while that is true, what that means is, of our own natural inclinations, we do not seek God. It is only through the leading and the guiding of the Holy Spirit that anybody seeks God. So we do seek God before salvation through the guidance of the Holy Spirit, and we ought to continue to seek God long after salvation by the same prompting. Now, our story, of course, takes place after the birth of Jesus. In fact, it is some time after his birth. Now, I realize that the nativity scenes that we see every year have these wise men at the stable with a baby in a manger. But that's not exactly accurate. You've also likely sent or been sent a Christmas card that includes the wise men there at the birth of Christ. But just because you've sent or been sent a card doesn't mean it's right either. Not every Christmas card is biblically accurate. Some time has elapsed, and we have several clues to this fact. First of all, we know that they traveled from a great distance. We do not know exactly where they came from, but we do know that they came from a great distance away, meaning there must have been some travel time before they actually came to Jesus. We know that later in chapter 2 of Matthew's gospel that Herod orders the death of all of the newborn male babies from two years old and under. Now, that does not mean that Jesus was two years old. Herod is just using a length of time to make sure without doubt that he is going to eradicate Jesus. But again, it does mean that some time has elapsed. And then many people see in verse 11 another clue where they go into a house and find Jesus, not a stable nor a cave, meaning that once again, the family must have moved from the birthplace. The location here is, of course, still Bethlehem. In, in our modern-day world, Bethlehem is a suburb of Jerusalem, a suburb in the sense that it is so closely connected to Jerusalem that when we were over there a few years ago and we were by bus traveling from one place to another, you would not have known you went from Jerusalem to Bethlehem had there not been a sign that told us we were now entering Bethlehem. So it's basically just connected to Jerusalem. But in Jesus' day, that was not the case. In Jesus' day, Bethlehem was a small, insignificant town five or six miles outside of the city of Jerusalem. Matthew makes a point of telling us that this was in Judea, or later on in the verses, in Judah. Because the Messiah had to be born in Bethlehem and had to be from the line of Judah. Herod, of course, is the reigning Roman official. He took charge in 37 B.C. We know that he died in 4 B.C., giving us a, a range of possibilities for the date of the birth of Jesus. We also know that Herod was a vicious, bloodthirsty tyrant, especially late in his reign, which clearly we are in this text. He put many people to death, including those of his own household, if there was any hint of treason. It did not matter how close an individual was to him. If there was any hint of treason, Herod would have them put to death. He was also known as 
king of the Jews. It wasn't technically that, but he was known by that title, which means he is not going to take kindly to some baby who is born and said to be king of the Jews. And then, of course, we have the wise men in the story, who I mentioned are the main characters in this text other than Jesus himself. Some translations call them the Magi, which is a word that was originally used to refer to officials who advised the king. Later on, the term was expanded to apply to men and priests who specialized in such things as astrology. We see the star making an appearance in this story. Or men who were involved in the interpretation of dreams, again, like we see in the book of Daniel, among other places. Or even men who were involved in what we might call magical arts. Because of all of this, the Jews actually kept their distance from such men, which makes it amazing that Matthew talks about them without any hint of disapproval at all. They were in all likelihood not kings. In spite of the carol that we sing, we three kings of Orient are, they were likely not kings. In fact, we don't even know that there was three. The only reason we say there are three is because they brought three gifts. But again, in all likelihood, there was others involved in the entourage that made this journey to find the Christ child. Again, we don't even know exactly where they were from. We know they were from the east, which probably means Babylon or Persia, but there have been others that have been suggested as well. What we do know is that these men somehow heard about the birth of the king of the Jews and came from a great distance to give him honor. They come first to Jerusalem, assuming, of course, that this is where the Messiah, the Christ child, would be born. And when they make their arrival in Jerusalem, word gets to Herod that there have been some men who have come into town who are searching for the one who is born king of the Jews. And so Herod gathers the religious leaders in Jerusalem. That's the men who were also troubled, you know, when it said Herod was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. The other religious, the religious leaders in Jerusalem were troubled by all of this. So Herod gathers them all around and inquires of them where the Christ was to be born. And so they quote from Micah, and the quote is that the place of the, his birth would be in Bethlehem. And so the wise men set out following the star to the specific place of Jesus' birth. All, of course, at the direction of Herod, for he says, I want to come and worship him as well, though, of course, we know that that is not true. Now, let me make a couple of comments about this before we move on. Again, the quote comes from Micah chapter 5 and verse 2. But there is a significant difference in what Matthew quotes from what Micah said. The original Michael, Micah prophecy says of Bethlehem that it was too little to be among the clans of Judah. In other words, this Bethlehem was just an insignificant, out-of-the-way, unimportant place. But notice how Matthew quotes it. Matthew says, it is by no means least among the rulers of Judah. What has changed? What has allowed Matthew to quote differently from Micah, changing the place of Bethlehem from an insignificant place to a significant place? 
And the answer is that the Messiah has been born. So much so that all of these thousands of years later, here we are talking about the significance of this city of Bethlehem. I also want you to see the opposite of what it looks like to be excited about seeking Jesus. I mean, we'll come back to seeking Jesus because that is the the major part of this entire story. But sometimes we can figure out what it looks like to do something by analyzing the opposite. So we can learn some things about what it means to seek Jesus by looking at those who refuse to seek him. And you say, well, where do we find that in this story? Well, we find it in those religious leaders. They tell Herod the prophecies from the Old Testament. They've read the scriptures. They know the word. They've been waiting for this for 400 years. That's the length of time, roughly speaking, between the Old Testament prophecies and the New Testament fulfillment of those prophecies. And so these religious leaders in Jerusalem say, well, the Old Testament tells us that Jesus is going to be born in Bethlehem. And so Herod sends the wise men off to figure it out. And yet these religious leaders in Jerusalem do not follow. I mean, after 400 years of waiting, they discover that the likelihood is that the fulfillment of these prophecies has occurred a mere five to six miles down the road, which as you well know, is about the distance from here to the interstate on Emory Road. That's how far away the Messiah has been born. And yet there is no indication in this text at all that any of them followed the wise men to see for themselves. Instead, they do nothing. They are not seeking Jesus with excitement. Instead, they are indifferent, apathetic. They could care less that the potential prophecies have been fulfilled right down the street in their own backyard. These are examples of men who know the scriptures, but don't apply them to their lives. What a sad response to Christmas. I hope that's not your response. I hope instead you are excited to seek Jesus. For those of us who by faith have trusted in Christ, that means, or who have not, I should say, by faith trusted in Christ, it means you must seek him for salvation. Understanding, of course, what I've already alluded to, and that is you cannot do this by your own effort. It must be the Holy Spirit of God who is drawing you, who is revealing to you, who is helping you to understand your need of salvation and who it is that can save you. But the good news is you do not have to seek far and wide as these wise men did. You do not have to wait for a miraculous star to guide you to the place Paul writes in in the book of Romans that we do not have to ascend into heaven to bring Christ down. We do not have to descend into the abyss to bring Christ up. Where Where is Christ, he says? Well, he says the word is near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. And then he goes on to say that if you'll confess the Lord Jesus with your mouth and believe in your heart, you can be saved. You don't have to seek far and wide. He is right here before you. But as a believer, our entire lives should be one of seeking Jesus and doing so with excitement. I mean, that's essentially what the definition of a believer is. 
Someone who faithfully follows Christ wherever he may lead. Someone who seeks and follows the Lord with their whole heart as their first priority, which of course is something we talked about a few weeks ago. So this Christmas week, I know you're excited about those potential presents under the tree. Especially those that you've shaken and yet you don't know what they are. You're excited to wake up on Christmas morning and open those up. You're excited to gather with family and friends. You're excited to eat some good food along the way. And all of that is, of course, okay. But I want you to be more excited about seeking Jesus. The one we celebrate this time of year. There is a saying that is often found on church signs this time of year. It says, wise men still seek him. I got a Christmas card with that title yesterday. To be honest, it's a bit corny, as most church signs are. But it's still true, isn't it? It is wise to seek Jesus. It is foolish not to. The second thing I want you to see is not only were they excited to seek Jesus, but they were excited to worship Jesus. Look at, look at their response in verse two, uh, verse 10, I'm sorry, when they finally get there. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. The word excitement is not there, but clearly that's exactly what they were. They were excited. And going on into the house, verse 11, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. When you seek something, in spite of all of the obstacles and difficulties, and finally find it, there is going to be much excitement. Just like when you want that specific present, and you've waited for that specific present, and you finally get it, you are going to be excited. Now, there is some debate as to the depth of the worship here that we find from these wise men. After all, they were Gentiles. They did not have full, if any, knowledge of the predictions concerning Christ. That's why they had to ask the religious leaders in Jerusalem where the Christ was supposed to be born. So some say this is not worship in the Christian sense here. It is simply honor and respect being bestowed upon a king by those who are high-ranking officials in other kingdoms. It certainly would have been customary for them to bow down before a king or superior, which in some sense is what the word worship means. But I also don't think it's a stretch to conclude that they worship Jesus according to the knowledge that they had, which means it was worship, but perhaps not as well, as formed, well informed as our own. Plus, the point here is not the depth of, or the accuracy of their worship. The real concern is whether we have a similar response to having found Jesus. Are we excited to worship Jesus because we have sought him and he has saved us? Now, worship might be a rather vague concept to you that you really have a hard time getting a grasp around what it really means. Or you might think that you know exactly what worship means and yet you confine it to a worship service and singing some worship songs. Now, the next two points we're going to look at are going to be expressions of worship, although the word worship is not going to be found in the title of those points, but rightly understood, they are expressions of worship. But for now, I simply want to say that our worship is going to be a direct reflection from our view of God. In other words, if we think God is small, 
If we think salvation is, is a minor thing that we actually deserve, of course God saves us. I'm a pretty good person. Well, then your worship is not going to be very strong. It's going to be shallow or even non-existent. You see, it is only as we begin to grasp the greatness of God and the utter unworthiness that is ours when it comes to our situation, and yet God saved us in spite of that. It is only as we begin to mine the depths of our sin and see that God saved us in spite of that that we will begin to worship with excitement and we will be filled with awe at the God who would do all of this for us in spite of who we are. Now, if you know anything about your Old Testament, and I hope you do, if you don't, or even if you do, we're going to start a new Bible reading plan in a few weeks. This year, we're just going to go straight through. We're going to start in Genesis and go through the end. But if you know your Bibles, you might be thinking about, about a particular story in the Old Testament that has a lot of commonality with what we're seeing here. It involves Solomon, the king, and the queen of Sheba. The queen of Sheba heard of the wisdom of Solomon and the wealth of Solomon. But she just had to see it with her own eyes. And so she travels also a great distance. She brings with her gifts because she wants to meet Solomon and see for herself. And so she does just that. And she meets Solomon. She asks him all kinds of questions. And she discovers that his wisdom is indeed very great. And she sees his prosperity, all of the possessions that he has and the officials that are attending to him. And she sees that his wealth is great as well. And having seen all of this, she says, the half was not told me. Your wisdom and prosperity surpassed the report I heard. She had doubted whether this was all true. And when she comes and sees it for herself, she says, what I was told doesn't even compare to the reality that I see with my eyes. Jesus referenced this story concerning himself as recorded by Matthew in the 12th chapter of this gospel. And Jesus concludes by referring to himself and saying, something greater than Solomon is here. I want you to understand that whatever feeble efforts I'm making this morning to talk about the greatness or the glory of God does not compare to the reality. I want you to understand that the tenth has not been told. And as a result, you and I need to seek the Lord while he may be found so that we can experience for ourselves who he is and fall down with these wise men and worship and see that he is worthy of worship and we ought to be excited to do just that. I would like to also add that Matthew is writing this gospel primarily to a Jewish audience. You can see some of that throughout the way he words things and the emphasis he gives. His gospel among all of the four is meant for primarily a Jewish audience. And yet the first people we see worshiping Jesus are Gentile wise men. If you've been with us on Wednesday nights prior to our renovation, as we've been studying the book of Acts, you know that we've seen step by step that this was a very difficult concept for the early church to come to terms with. That Gentiles could be saved and worship God the same way that the Jews could. And yet here in Matthew's gospel, it's the first form of worship we see. Gentiles, just like us, worshiping Jesus. 
Well, the third thing I want you to see is that we should be excited to give to Jesus. The wise men bring gifts to Jesus. In fact, that's what they're primarily known for. We know enough of this story to know that the wise men are equated with the gifts that they brought. And likewise, we should bring our gifts to the king as an expression of our gratefulness for who he is and what he's done for us. And you say, well, here it comes. I knew he'd get around to this. He's going to tell us we need to give to the church, or we need to give to Lottie Moon, or we need to give to both. And all of those things are true. But that is not my point this morning. In fact, by the time I'm done with this brief point, you are going to wish I had said that. Because what I'm asking you to give is far more costly and far more sacrificial than just a weekly offering. Now, I do need to take a moment to clear up something, something that was a misunderstanding from my sermon last week. Last week, you may have recalled that I said that I was giving you permission. Though you did not need my permission, I was giving you permission to say no to some things at Christmas so that you could say yes to the true meaning of Christmas. And I know there was some misunderstanding about that because my own family misunderstood that. Because at lunch last Sunday, my family told me that they were going to say, they were going to say no to giving me Christmas presents <laughs> so that they could say yes to the true meaning of Christmas. That's not what I meant. Neither can we say no to giving things to Jesus because that's part of Christmas. So before we go on to talk about what we need to give, let's take a quick look at what these wise men brought. Again, this is a well-known part of the story. They bring three gifts. Gold, very valuable and represents royalty. In fact, even to this day, when an old tomb is discovered and there is gold in that tomb, it is evidence that a very important, if not a royal person, was buried in that grave. And then, of course, we have frankincense. It was used in the temple worship, mixed with oil to anoint the priest. It was a sweet-smelling perfume. And then there is myrrh, also used, among other things, for the embalming of the dead, as it was in the burial of Jesus. It was also mixed with wine at the crucifixion of Jesus to be used as a crude antiseptic to dull the pain, though, of course, we know that Jesus did not take it. I told you a week or two ago that as I'm in homes at Christmas visiting our homebound members, they're often watching TV and it might surprise you to know that the, a lot of them watch the Western Channel. They watch Western movies. And so I was in one of those homes the other day, and one of them said to me, you know, they used whiskey for all kinds of things in the Old West. And so if you've watched any Western movies, you know that they had to take whiskey before they pulled the bullet out of somebody. It was an antiseptic. And that's the same thing myrrh was used for in the time of Jesus. In fact, our song of the month references these things. God, gold, a king is born today. That's the royalty aspect. Incense, I mean, we can't use frankincense because that just doesn't flow in a song. So they had to shorten it to incense. Incense, God is with us. Myrrh, his death will make a way. Now, whether the wise men knew all of this symbolism or not, they brought costly and extravagant gifts to give to the king, which leads us to consider what we need to bring. 
We too must bring something of value. We must bring a a costly and extravagant gift to God. And what is that gift? We are to give ourselves, our lives, in response to what the king has done in providing us salvation. You see, we belong to him. As believers, we've been bought with a price, therefore our lives belong to Jesus. Yes, that does include our money, and it does include our talents, but it goes far beyond that. And as I mentioned a moment ago, this indeed is an aspect of worship. We express our excited worship by giving everything we are and everything we will be to him and his kingdom. And that's why I said, now you wish I would have said, drop a 20 in the plate on your way out. Because this is far more costly than giving some money. So as you give and receive gifts this week, and as you get excited about all or some of them, remember that not only have you been given the greatest gift, that is the gift of salvation, you are in response to be excited about giving yourselves to Jesus. Which leads us very quickly to our last point, and that is we are to be excited to live because of Jesus. We find this in the last verse. It's hinted at, and that is these wise men went home, but they did so by a different way. They were alerted to the real reason that Herod had sent them, and therefore they did not tip him off as to where Jesus was born. They went home differently. The point for our consideration is, there, is that their encounter with Jesus left them changed. As should be, our, as should be the case when our, with our relationship with Jesus. And this change means that they were inspired and empowered to live for him because he died for us. Your life, my life, should be different. We should walk a different path. In fact, a radically different path once we meet and begin following Jesus. Now, I realize it seems awkward for us to talk about the death of Christ during this season in which we celebrate his birth. But the truth is, his death and resurrection were the purpose for his birth. All of this goes together, or it all falls apart. Jesus came to save us, and in order to save us, he had to go to the cross, and he had to go through the grave, and he had to be resurrected again. You know, in this story, Jesus is called the King of the Jews. It's interesting that that's not a very common title in Matthew's gospel. It sort of rolls off the tongue for us, but in Matthew's gospel, it's few and far between that that phrase is used. In fact, it is not used again after this story. In Matthew 2, that that title is not used again until Matthew chapter 27, after Jesus has been arrested and he is being beaten and mocked. It's a funny way to treat a king, isn't it? As we've said, we're to give ourselves to him, and we are to live for him and to do so excitingly. So this morning, as we observe the Lord's Supper in just a few moments, a time of commemorating the death of Christ, even as we celebrate his his birth, we know why he came. In celebrating his birth, we remember his sacrifice, Because the manger is just part of the story. That precious baby that we see in the manger grew up and lived a sinless life. He was sacrificed and died a substitutionary death. 
And he rose again victoriously on our behalf that we might have life both abundant and eternal. And so as we do what he commanded us to do, that is to partake of this Lord's Supper, may we do so as we remember the Lamb slain for us. Let me pray. Father, even in this time of year where we celebrate the birth of Jesus, we gather this morning to remember the purpose for that birth. And the purpose is so that we might be saved. The Messiah has come to bring us salvation. May we remember that truth today and all days. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.